The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us start now our shorter tonight satsang because after this there comes our full moon meditation. So we continue with uh, what is probably the last but one of the categories of precepts taught by Tibetan yogis to their disciples, showing different aspects of the spiritual life in this typically Tibetan slash Chinese also way in which things are categorized. It's a very Buddhist thing. It starts from Buddha who speaks about the four noble, there are not five noble truths, there are not three, there are four, no, the four noble truths. The eight ways of practicing for peacing the mind, there are, why is the eight? Can somebody not invent a ninth one? Maybe, but the there is something definitive in this Buddhist way. Like I say, the four noble truths, it means even Jesus Christ cannot find the fifth one. There is no fifth noble truth. Everything has been boiled down to four noble truths. And if you would find the fifth one, that is kind of redundant. It can be included in the other four. It's an extension of the other four. This is like somebody has boiled down the spiritual truths to some fundamental dimensions. This would be, for example, like an effect of Ajna Chakra. If somebody takes a subject like, which are the essential truths of life? Which are the essential truths of manifestation? This, this, this. What about this? Oh no, this is 75% of this plus 25% of this. It's included. It's not to the basis. It's like a distillation of the truth. This is a typical characteristic of Ajna Chakra and it is used to, in Buddhism in general, in the Tibetan tradition and in the Chinese tradition, even in Taoism, which is not related to Buddhism uh, more, then, for example, in India, although there are some categorizations in India, the five yamas, the five niyamas, things are being categorized, the eight stages of yoga, and all that kind of thing. So, <coughs> we had a chapter which was talking about the ten necessary things, the most important things, and then a chapter about the ten unnecessary things. Completing it, rounding it up, the paragraph, the chapter number 24 out of these 27 or 28 paragraphs, I forgot exactly how many they are in number, but there is only one which I had in plan to bring here, because the other ones, the some couple of the final ones are very philosophical, intellectual. The number 24 is called the 10 more precious things. It is simply, again, pure discrimination. This is pure discrimination at the level of Ajna Chakra. From the standpoint of discrimination, this is more precious than that. And it puts things into perspective. It suddenly creates order out of chaos. For many people, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you go, you do this and so on. You go to this party or to this, I don't know, the, and uh, to a decompression party or to burning man or something like this. And there, everything goes. For Jesus, not everything goes. Jesus is far, far from accepting that everything goes. Like somebody comes and wants to stick a finger up the anus of Jesus because everything goes. No, it doesn't. It, not everything goes. It's absurd. Therefore, um, exactly in a similar way, 
things in discrimination, they are not all the same. And you are going to see that some of them are very politically incorrect according to the Tibetan yoga, because um, we live in a world of Svadhisthana, and Svadhisthana, like the water, is trying to be a flat land, is trying to equalize everything. Oh, everybody is equal to everybody. If a Buddha lives, he should have the same social rights with the last drunk on the street. It's absurd. It's completely not divine. In a, in a divine environment, a Buddha will, would be given a hundred or a thousand times more decisional power than the last drunk on the street. It is the absurdity of this phenomenon called democracy in which a million stupid people can tell to, what, to one genius what's going to happen, what's going to be. The correct thing would be to let the genius decide for the one million idiots, but that seems to be a politically incorrect and not acceptable for many. This is a vision of Svadhisthana, remember, typical, like, hey, why would you be more important than me? As you are going to see in the second statement, it's even stated just like that. One, the first of the ten more precious things. Think, things which are more precious than another, just to make a bit of sense. One, one free and well-endowed human life is more precious than myriads of non-human lives in any of the six states of existence. A human life, but not any human life. A free human life and a well-endowed human life. A free human life. In the old days, many people were not free. There still existed serfdom, slavery, and many people think that if we abolished slavery in the 19th century or whenever that happened, now we are better off. But the fact is that people are the slaves of many things. People are the slaves of their desires. People are the slaves of vices. People are the slaves of money and money conditionings. People are the slaves of many, many things. Like, for example, if you don't have the money to buy your airplane ticket and sustain yourself here for six months, you simply cannot come. Actually, it is exactly as you have a, um, a master, and that master says, you cannot go. Of course, you don't see it as a person, but it's still a slavery. Not to have the means of doing whatever you want is still a slavery. I remember I was once talking with rich people living tax-free in the south of Spain at the time when Spain was a tax haven in Europe. And... Um, I was a little bit impressed negatively by some of these people's obsession with money. And one of them told me their philosophy in a nutshell. They said, you know, this is not about money itself. It's about not kissing ass, not having to kiss ass. Because people that have no money have to kiss ass constantly. When you have tons of money, suddenly you don't have to kiss ass anymore. Therefore, evaluate a little bit this statement and then turn back. It's not only about money, of course, that's the last, the last little wheel in the chain. It is a, a one free human life. How free are you, really, socially, physically? and in so many other ways. Remember that freedom and slavery are not only visible freedom and slavery, there exist a lot of undertones and a lot of invisible things. 
A person who is an alcoholic is not free. That person is a slave. A person that is addicted to smoking is partly a slave to that vice. Therefore, one has to stand up and create as much freedom as possible. The acme of freedom is called moksha or mukti. It is the state of enlightenment or nirvana, and it represents a degree of freedom which is inconceivable to the normal levels of consciousness. One free human life and one well-endowed human life. You might be born in a human life, but if you are born with a Down syndrome and half of your brain is turned to mush, I'm sorry again for the political correctness of this, because people that are handicapped are not even allowed to be called handicapped anymore. They are called differently abled and all sorts of other phantasmagoric syntagms about it. The truth being that if you are in that condition, then this does not apply. Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, constantly speaks about a well-endowed human body. This goes to the point where some extreme gurus from the tantric tradition of India, they completely refused initiation to anybody who was incomplete or distorted in any physical part of their body. Like the first thing before being accepted was to have a physiognomical and morphological, anatomical examination. If you are missing as much as a finger, then the guru would say, please go. You can go to Vedantins, you can go to Bhakti Yogis, they have a great heart, they will take you. In Tantra, no. Kundalini Yoga, no. You have to be perfect in all parts of the body. According to those, if you had appendicitis surgery, you don't qualify. If you have tonsil tonsillitis surgery or nasal polyp surgery, you don't qualify because a part of your body has been excised and therefore you don't have a fullness of the human body. The mandala is flawed, is chipped. If your body is a mandala, Imagine that you have one of those perfect, beautiful mandalas and somebody smears a finger across it. It's not perfect anymore. That little imperfection was frowned upon. Well, let's not go as far as that. A well-endowed human life means, means that you would be at least average from the standpoint of your physical health physical endowment, intelligence, openness of the heart, and all the other things which characterize the human being. So, not uh, like if you have a life where you are hit by profound slavery or disability, that does not integrate in this category. But one free and well-endowed human life, as the majority of people are supposed to have, those who don't have it, don't have it because of some severe karmic consequences, nothing happens without a reason, without a very good reason. So one free and well-endowed human life, there is a lot of judgment in this first words, one free and well-endowed human life is more precious than myriads of non-human lives in any of the six states of existence. The six states of existence, according to Tibetan Buddhism, are the six lokas. It is the human world, the world of the devas, of the gods, the world of animals, the world of the titans, of the asuras, of the demonic, powerful titans, the world of the animals, the world of the hungry spirits, 
And besides those, you find as well the hells, the infernos. And a human being can at one time or another exist in any of those six. Even gods, yes, theoretically at least, a human being can be born for a short time in Devaloka, in the world of the gods. And then the human being will enjoy for a number of years a semi-divine status, maybe not as the great deities, but as the smaller ones. How is that? That is due to karma, due to merit, due to excellent karma, due to great merit, due to the development of some higher levels of consciousness, like you have gone very much into Vishuddha Chakra, into Ajna Chakra, but that will not last forever. It's not a permanent thing. So actually you can go for 200 years and live as a slightly superhuman spirit, and after which you will relapse back into humanity, because it was not a permanent condition, was not something which was gained permanently. That's why it compares it to human life. And still this says, even being born as a deva in devaloka, as a deity in devaloka, cannot compare to the human life. Devas are stuck in devaloka. Human beings can practice meditation like Gautama Buddha and reach nirvana in a few years, in a lifetime. Therefore, this is very, very important. Animals are not as important as human beings. None of the six lokas, titans, demons, hungry ghosts, uh, or even devas, they are not as important as the human condition. Human beings deprecate their own condition. Like human beings put it down. There are so many books and documentaries or opinions where people say humanity is shit. Mankind is shit. Man is a virus for the face of the earth. Tibetan Buddhists didn't think that. Tibetan Buddhists thought that a free, well-endowed human life is the most privileged condition in this part of the universe. There might exist other universes with other laws, but we don't have access to those right now. In what we know, in what is accessible from here and now, the human condition is superior. The only superior thing is enlightenment itself. But the human condition is the condition which can directly reach to enlightenment. There will be none of you in this hall tonight who will make tremendous efforts like Milarepa and you will not reach enlightenment. That is a promise, a guarantee, which I am bringing in front of you. The problem is that if you will find yourself on your deathbed and you will have not reached nirvana, and you will start nagging, like, yeah, I made efforts and I still didn't reach it. The question is that you did not make as much efforts as Milarepa did. That's the problem. The amount matters. The commitment matters. You have to break through. It's like you are going to say, I pressed on this piece of wood and it didn't break. Because you didn't press hard enough. Every piece of wood has a break point. So if you press hard enough, it will break. The problem is you never made it to the break point. It's the same with the spiritual reality. Remember, everybody who is free and well endowed can actually reach nirvana. The devas do not reach nirvana. People have the fallacious feeling that if you are in a superhuman existence, it's better. It's better in a selfish way, like you can have enjoyments which are bigger. But even the devas do not reach the nirvana so easily. It may take a very convoluted roundabout long way for the devas to reach the state of nirvana. 
In the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali mentions it clearly that on the road to the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, in the final stages, one aspect of the last temptation, like the last temptation of the Buddha, is that the gods are greeting you when you are 90% through the process, still in Ajna Chakra and not in Sahasrara, gods, deities, are greeting you and saying, wow, congratulations, you made it to the world of gods. Now you can drink ambrosia and have pleasure forever. And Patanjali simply says, when that will happen to you, turn your back on it. Give them the finger because they are not enlightened. They are not liberated. They are high up on the mountain, but that doesn't make enlightenment yet. And that is why, yes, a human life is more precious than myriads of non-human. Myriads. Myriad is a word which can mean anything. Millions, billions, thousands, whatever. It's a, simply a ginormous number. So a human, one free and well-endowed human life is more precious than myriads of non-human lives in any of the six states of existence. This shows the value of the human life. That is why suicide is not an option. That is why even Jesus says, For God does not wish the death of the sinner, but the redemption of the sinner. Like everything should come before death. Death means the termination of a human life. And the human life has the potential to yield Buddhahood. Therefore, the human life is extremely precious and people are wasting it living in slums and sewers and you know, doing living subhuman lifestyles that is such a waste of resources. I think it was Socrates, but I might be wrong, one of the great philosophers who seeing two vagabonds fighting for some trivial matter in a slum, he raised his hands to heaven and he said, the idiots, if they knew how much you have to stand in line up there to get a place down here. Therefore, it is said by the great Hindu mystics that in Satya Yuga, in the Golden Age, even the gods take advantage of the underpopulation and the special conditions existing on earth in those days, and even the gods get incarnated. They incarnate on earth, not in Kali Yuga, where there are seven million farting idiots all around you, polluting your air. In Satya Yuga, where there live a hundred thousand people on the whole, whole face of the earth. And then, in that time, even the gods take special bodies, those four to six meter tall bodies that live a thousand years of age, and they live as humans to be able to give it a great shot to nirvana, to enlightenment. The human life is privileged in many ways, and we are wasting it, taking a bottle of Heineken, sitting by an artesian well in the middle of our town, and looking at the people passing by on the main street, and just spending five hours sitting on your bum in the sunshine like a fly in your city, when there is no time to waste, when the human life is more precious than on the con existential conditions in the universe. That is why this is good. It puts a perspective already into things. One human life is more precious than others. Yeah, e even than animals, even than others. This gives a special importance to being born human. While being human is not so spectacular, it contains in it the germ of enlightenment. As the Bible says, God created man in his own likeness. It doesn't say that animals were created in the likeness of God. It says man has been created in the likeness of God 
And that is a very special statement. The second more precious thing. One sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. This is the total downfall of democracy. It basically says that a million Tom, Dicks and Harry can die to save the life of one sage, of one enlightened being. This is, of course, totally against the precepts of the day, but people who would venerate uh, the Dalai Lama or uh, Jesus or some, something like someone like that, they would have completely subscribed to this opinion. One who truly is what he or she is supposed to be, is way, way more valuable. Like in the moment when thousands of people died and hundreds of thousands of people died in wars or whatever, it does not produce as much as a shock in the energy as when one like Jesus dies or when one like Milarepa dies. It is like the light of the world goes off to a certain extent when such a person leaves the physical world. It's as Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It is very hard to understand for the normal person who doesn't understand the glory of this existential condition. Swami Vivekananda of India said, if God will give me a hundred disciples reaching the state of Samadhi, where I can change all the moral, ethical, and existential conditions, not only in India, but on the whole planet Earth. Of course, being Kali Yuga, because of the necessity of this time, God did not give him a hundred enlightened disciples, we wonder if he had any single enlightened disciple, and therefore those remain just words. But the perception of Swami Vivekananda was that a hundred Buddhas could change the whole planet. If one Buddha made so much and is still remembered after 25 centuries, hundred of them at the same time present on the face of this earth, it could change pretty much everything. And that is why, indeed, the statement remains, one sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. He chooses the extreme. He doesn't say one sage is more precious than multitudes of the others. Among the others, there are bodhisattvas, 80% Buddhas. They are very spiritual people, like 50% on their way up to Buddhahood. He doesn't compare to those. He goes to the other end of the scale, the irreligious and worldly-minded persons. Irreligious would mean materialists, atheists. It's a pretty harsh judgment, especially when today we have more than 20% atheistic population in the world who prefers to believe in science than in nirvana, then automatically here we have a very stern statement, a very harsh statement. If this is true, many people would bite the dust pretty hard and uh, therefore it is to be considered with care. One sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. Worldly-minded. Worldly-minded. You know, worldly Facebook, MTV, all that stuff. Worldly-minded people. People for whom all these things of the world take precedence. As in the statement, if you don't give God the first place in your life, you don't give God any place. If your children are more important to you than God, then you are an irreligious person, ultimately. 
That's the toughness of it. That's the high stakes which are raised here. So that is why, of course, not many people can live up to such standards. Remember that in the some of the ultimate sins according to Tibetan Buddhism are like the most heinous crimes which bring the most terrible spiritual karma are crimes such as to kill your own mother or there is a whole list to make two spiritual schools fight against each other like the Kargyutpas against the Gelukpas or some other things which did happen in Tibetan history. I took a Tibetan example, and uh, one of those on that list is to shed the blood of a Buddha. To shed the blood of a Buddha is a terrible sin, because you are not killing just some other person. Maybe physically, that person looks like some other person, but the meaning of that person seen from the standpoint of Shambhala or seen from the standpoint of the kingdom of heaven is gigantic. Imagine that somebody would have killed Buddha when Buddha was young. Imagine the consequences in all the spiritual history of Asia just for to take a very clear example. That's why they tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. No, because they knew if this baby grows up, this baby is going to make a huge difference in the history of the world. There were a million Tom, Dicks and Harrys in those days. Nobody remembers even their names. Those people are cannon fodder for the human history. They come and go. They are faces in a crowd. Of course, they were important to themselves. For their own ego, they seemed that their life was very relevant and important. But when you look now 2,000 years back, you remember Peter and Paul, you don't remember so much all those faces in the crowd. And that is why one sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. To shed the blood of a Buddha. It happens so often. We live in such a demonic form of Kali Yuga these days that in the last 2,000 years, in the last 2,500 years, so many saintly persons have been persecuted. From Buddha himself, who was almost killed a couple of times, to Jesus, who is the arch example of self-sacrifice and persecution, from Milarepa to Saint Catherine the Great, from Saint Francis of Assisi to Rumi or Shams al-Tabrizi, you always find great, great persecution. Many prophets, many Jewish prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted, many killed and so on, simply because people could not stand the truth. When, if you will bother ever to read Socrates, everybody who is intelligent, witty, will find Socrates delightful. Socrates is one of the most lovely spirits that you have encountered. And guess what? The Greeks killed him. At some point, the Athenian parliament, or whatever it was, they gathered and they said, there is this guy Socrates in town who doesn't beat up anybody, doesn't rape, doesn't steal, doesn't kill, but he goes around telling the very uncomfortable things to the face of people. And the Athenians, lovely Democrats, it was a democracy, the 50,000 idiots killing the righteous one. That's how democracy goes. If 50,000 people decide you should die, even if you are a genius like Socrates, then you are put to death. So they came to Socrates and they said, here is a cup of poison, please drink it in front of everybody, because we are fed up with your shenanigans. We are fed up with your spirits. 
you might think you are very why didn't they tell him just go away live your life go to Germanic tribes or some place go out of Greece and live your life somewhere else no they had to kill him they had to poison him the man didn't do any legal crime and yet the only thing which he did he was sharp and showing to people you are pigs you are ruled by the body you are not spiritual you are hypocrites you are playing games you are this People got so fed up with this that they preferred to kill Socrates. This is Kali Yuga. This should not happen. When somebody like Jesus would appear, you should instantaneously make him king. Say, finally, a genius among us. Lead us. What is the right thing to do next? No. People will say, Jesus if you want to cut off my cigarettes and my booze, then we crucify you. My cigarettes and my booze are more important than your life. You are a pain in the neck. You are a thorn in the rib of the society. Go to hell. We don't want you around here. This is a world of demons. This is a world of pygmies. This is a world of ugly souls of little souls. This is not a world of Mahatmas, of great souls. This is a world of small crippled souls who run like cockroaches from the light of the truth. That is why one sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. That's why when they crucified Jesus, Although he was in agony and he was going through so many things, one of the things Jesus, according to the Bible, said six or seven sentences or words while he was on the cross. One of the things which Jesus said, those seven little statements which Jesus made while he was agonizing on the cross, was that he prayed to God for the Roman soldiers that were crucifying them, him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. If these people would know, would have a third eye vision of what they are doing right now, they would prefer to have their arms and legs cut off and to live the rest of their lives as human sausages rather than doing this. They would prefer any torture or mutilation in the big picture instead of killing somebody like Jesus. You can't re realize because the, you say, well, you kill a person, you kill a person. That's the biological factor. That's the biological karma. You kill a man, either that man is a drunk from the slums or is Jesus Christ, you kill the human body. You owe a human life. So physically, the karma is the karma of killing. But spiritually, spiritually, try to think, if you kill one like Jesus, how many people are you going to, ha to handicap? How many people are you going to deprive of the spiritual light which came from that one person? Because not nobody around Jesus would have meant anything without Jesus. Virgin Mary and the twelve apostles, they are like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. Jesus is the sun. And if you put off the sun, all the moons become dark. Peter and Paul and Mary and whoever is famous in that Christian story is famous because the sun of Jesus shone upon them and made, gave them some light. Ramakrishna created Sarada Devi and Vivekananda and all those. Without Ramakrishna, those people would have not existed as such. Buddha created Buddhism and Bodhidharma and everything which came after. And that is why, indeed, one sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. People do not see that.
we live in such an age of confusion that people not only that they don't see that but in the last 2500 years we kill saints like maniacs there was almost no saint that was not persecuted a lot even you know islamic saints living in islam like rumi and shams even christian saints living in a christian world like francis of assisi or teresa of avila you name it even saints living in their own environment mysteriously they got punished like padre pio at the time when the catholic church was squealing for a few saints to squeeze a bit of fame and reputation still in the 20th century when the catholic church was running almost dry of saints and it started it started uh, canonizing all sorts of activists and charitable people who were not nirvanic people they were just social workers and they came to be canonized because otherwise it would look very clearly that in the 16th century there were 20 saints and in the 20th century there were one or two and then of course this will show clearly a decline and in such a century where the officials of the catholic church unless they were dead stupid they could realize the crisis of the modern world and of their religion suddenly there emerges a man like padre pio who is a staunch catholic and he's a great saint and he is condemned to stay locked in his cell and not to serve the mass and not to meet with people and not to administer confessions he's punished he's punished by his own church and taken to obedience like obey that's what the pope wants of you he is treated like a criminal at a time when the church needs desperately saints it is very strange in what kind of world we live and it shows what tendencies are dominating the world are dominant in this world that is why the tibetan yogis have said it but it will not be listened do not expect it to be listened at one sage is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly minded persons if you would be the king of a country importing one sage in your country would be more than importing a thousand medical doctors or a thousand physicists or a thousand teachers or something like that very few people would understand that today because the spiritual value is not seen very easily of course there is a lot of crookedness there is a lot of delusion these days and you can always take the fake one like you can say this person was this person a sage or not but the bottom line of all this is then that in terms the people that had vision the people that were seers the people that had a big ajna chakra the people who understood the vision of buddha and of shambhala they realized this that people are not equal exactly as a pebble is not equal to a diamond you can say that both of them represent 10 grams of matter but 10 grams of a diamond and 10 grams of a pebble on the street they can fulfill very very different functions and they have a very very different value therefore be aware of this because working for wisdom is working for a higher value try to realize it's a existential thing is as we said with the freedom if any one of you here in this room would have 50 million dollars plus in your bank account you would be at a higher degree of freedom 
than most people in this room are and which they cannot imagine. Actually, people that are financially insecure and not independent constantly blame and mumble at people that have money, like people that have money are supposed always to be assholes and bastards, which is just envy, ultimately, because most people don't even understand the level of consciousness of that, and they don't understand the degree of freedom which that gives. And that is why I'm saying this to understand if any one of you would, it is a demonstrated thing that if people win the lottery, I don't know in how many years, five years, eight years, ten years, I forgot, but there is a statistic that more than 90% of them are bankrupt. You win a hundred million dollars, ten years after, you are screwed. Why? Because your aura is not prepared to hold that energy. You don't understand what the energy of that much money is. The degree of power and freedom that it gives to a human being. And if you are a pessimistic loser, when you win those money, you are going to forfeit the money. You are going to spend them foolishly, invest them crazily, and in 10 years you will not have them. They will, they will slide on you like water slides on oil. They will not grip to you. You need to have something in your aura to be able to keep that amount of money, which gives you that amount of power, that amount of freedom. Therefore, people who don't have it, they say, oh, the grapes are sour. But that is just, uh, again, a, a misunderstanding. It is the same thing with becoming a sage. Many of you in this room are aiming to the fact that you could become a Buddha in this lifetime. Please realize, if any one of you in this room is going to become a Buddha in this lifetime, and I pray that as many as possible of you will see Buddhahood in this lifetime, you will become a sage which is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. When Jesus was turning those fishermen and copper beaters into his apostles, he told them, you are the salt of the earth. Not even a hair on your head moves unless my Father in heaven in heaven allows it to happen. Like he told them, you have become VIPs by becoming my apostles. You can't see it. Even they could not see it. But Peter became a super VIP in the world of antiquity. You do not remember the name of all the Roman emperors. Very few of you will remember what the name of the Roman emperor was at the time when Jesus was crucified. Under which Roman emperor did Jesus get crucified? But you do remember Jesus. Therefore, and Peter... Peter is more significant to the human history than the emperor of the Roman Empire in those days who had a lot of secular power, who probably caused the death of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and ruled over a geographical area which is inconceivable at a time where there was no radio communication of any kind and all only on horses you could send news and messages. That's why I'm saying... Realize, in the moment when you are going towards this, you have to be prepared for a transformation. As modest as you are, you will find yourself in the situation where you, if you become a sage, which you wish to, if you will become a sage, one of the collaterals of it is, willy-nilly, either you like it or not, one of the collaterals is that when you will become a sage, you will, have, you will be more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded people. You will be a total VIP. 
If you don't want to become a total VIP, then don't become a Buddha. Don't become a spiritual person. If not, be prepared to live with that. You have to live with that. What is the difference in your consciousness when you walk on the street and you feel, if I die today, it is more important than if a million people disappear? Can you even think that thought? Does it sound as completely megalomanic, sick, absurd? Then you are not prepared for being like Peter and being like Milarepa. Milarepa knew my presence in this world now that I have reached Nirvana is something which means more than a life of a million commoners. That's a way of thinking. And remember, these people did not become tyrants. They did not become despots. They did not become egocentric monsters. These were people that were compassionate, merciful, selfless. People of great noble human qualities. And yet, that was the truth of their life. The truth of their lives was that those people, while they looked like any other person on the street, they were more important than millions. And this is something which you need to get used to. Exactly as people who need to get, who wish to get rich, first have to get used to the power and freedom and other obligations of being rich, because otherwise you'll lose the money almost instantaneously. Also, in a similar way, people that want to become VIPs in spirituality, they have to get used with being in the limelight and having that status. Your status will be completely different. This being said, I stopped at the statement number two. We don't even make a final meditation because it's late and you need to prepare for the spiral. And the spiral will be perfect opportunity to deepen these two more precious things. With this, namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining the satsang. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.